Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Welcome to all of you who are here live in the sanctuary. Also to those of you who are watching this on the internet, welcome to you as well. Thanks for taking time out of your day to be here with us. If we haven't met before, my name is Jimmy Cozy. I'm on staff here. I lead our student ministry, which means I spend a lot of my time with our 6th through 12th grade students, and I love it. I love being able to see God work in the lives of our young people. But from time to time, I also have the chance to be here with you and to look into God's Word together, and I'm excited to do that today because I know that when God's Word is open, He's speaking. And so I'm excited to hear what He has to say to us today. Uh, this year at CCC, our theme has been transformed. So the idea behind it is that we would be different at the end of 2018 than we were at the beginning of it. So that God would work in our lives in some way that we would come out of this year changed. And we just started a series. We're in the third week now in the book of Ephesians. By the way, if you are looking to get one of the Ephesians Together booklets and you weren't able to last week or the week before, there are more of them. They're at the bookstore right now. We got more in. So make sure you grab one if you've not gotten one already and you need one. But what I love about the book of Ephesians is that it is all about transformation. If you look at the first few chapters of Ephesians, there are all of these statements of transformation. It will say something like you were once this way and then something happened to you and now you're different. And this happens a couple of times. And the passage today is one of them. And we already read it before, but I'm going to read it again. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, it'll be on the screens. Here's what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So back at the beginning of the year when we started Transformed, we said the Bible makes some really big claims. And one of the things that the Bible claims is that we are able to know God, that we're able to know him. And this passage is really important because it describes the various parts of that and how that works. And so there are three parts we're going to look at today. The first is my part, and the second is Jesus' part, and then the third is the part that we do together. My part, Jesus' part, and the part that we do together. And we'll start with my part, which is in verses one through three. So I'm going to read those again. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So as I said earlier, I am the student ministry pastor here, which means that I spend a lot of time with middle school students, which means I, more than probably just about any other adult, think more about my own time in middle school. 
Because nobody really likes to think about their time in middle school. We don't often think back to it. But one of the things that I do often with our students is I'll tell stories about things that happened to me in middle school. Number one, because it, it's, it's something that they can relate to. Number two, it's kind of like therapy for me. It helps me to work through everything that happened when I was in junior high. But whenever I tell a story, I'll put this picture on the screen of me when I was in eighth grade. That's eighth grade Jimmy right there. He's making his sanctuary debut, so it's great. Um, but there's something that happened to me when I was in eighth grade. So like any other middle school, we had phys ed. We had gym class. And uh, so the way that our phys ed worked is we would move through different units a couple of weeks at a time. So we would spend two weeks playing basketball, learning all about basketball. Two weeks playing soccer, learning all about soccer. Same with football and a, a bunch of other sports. And one day the teacher got up in front of the class and said, hey, everybody, we're going to start a new unit today in track and field, track and field. And so we're going to learn all about the different events of, of track and field. And then at the end, we're going to divide the class into two, two teams and we're going to hold a mock track meet where you'll be able to sign up for different events and the class will compete against each other in all of these different track and field events. And so there was one event in that upcoming meet that everybody wanted to avoid. I still shudder just to think about it, but it was the 1200 meter race. It was the longest race in the entire event. And something you need to know about eighth grade Jimmy is that health and fitness were not a huge priority for me at that point in my life. I liked playing video games. I liked candy. I did not like thinking about how to be more healthy or cardiovascularly healthy or anything like that. And so uh, the other thing is, so the day came when we were supposed to sign up for different events. And uh, I, like many middle school boys, was not paying attention to what was going on around me. And so I ended up at the back of the line and I was the last person to be able to sign up. And when I got to the front, the teacher had this big poster board with slots next to each event for each team. There's only one slot left in my team and it was the 1200 meter race. And I begged for mercy and was, it did not get any of it. And I had to do the 1200 meter race. And so from that moment, I began to dread the day that that track meet was coming. And the day finally came. And I remember I was walking down the hall and I was carrying my gym bag, which back then they didn't issue us gym clothes. We had to bring our own, which means that like every other eighth grade boy, I had a gym bag that came in the doors of the school on the first day of school and did not depart the days, doors of the school until the last day of school. So I was carrying my gym bag and I was cycling in my head through all of the possible last ditch scenarios that I could get out of this race. And so finally I came up with what I thought was bulletproof. I took my gym bag and I just stuffed it in the trash can. And I figured no clothes, no race, but I was wrong. I had to run the race anyway and I didn't finish and it was terrible. But fast forward to today, uh, my wife and I are in the process of training together to run a half marathon, which means that over the last few weeks, I've done training runs upwards of eight or nine miles which is a huge difference from being in eighth grade and not being able to run 1,200 meters, which is about three quarters of a mile. So the question is, what happened? What changed? Well, the easy answer is I trained. I was unhealthy, and so I started running. I started eating differently. I changed my habits. I exercised. I got stronger. I developed endurance, and eventually I got to the point where I was able to do something. I, I went from being unhealthy to being a little bit more healthy. And the reason I tell you that is because that's how we tend to view ourselves spiritually. 
We tend to think that there are things that we can do to please God. And the more of those things we're able to do, the more spiritually healthy we'll become. And so if God is unhappy with us, we can do a bunch of things and that will take us from a place of being spiritually unhealthy to a place of being spiritually healthy. He'll be happier with us because we've been able to kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get there. But that isn't what this passage says. This passage doesn't say you were sick, you were unhealthy. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. And if I'm honest, this passage is not as uplifting or inspirational as I prefer my scripture passages to be. And I think the reason why is because of all the things that the Bible says about me, this is one of the ones that I have the most trouble believing. I have the most trouble believing this because I always find myself asking the question, is it really that bad? Am I really that broken? Could this really be true? And maybe you're asking the same question too. Maybe you've done that when you see passages like this. And I think the reason why is because if I took a poll of this room, myself included, the vast majority of us would probably say that we are pretty good people. We're kind, we're generous, we are, we're good people. And I think a lot of people would say that about, our, about themselves. But the question is, where do we get that from? Why are we so convinced that we are good people? Uh, and when I really think about this issue, the thing that helps me the most is to take that question of, could this possibly be true about me? And kind of reverse it. Instead of asking, how do I know I'm this bad? I ask myself, how do I know that I'm this good? Because there's something that each one of us hangs our hats on to say, you know what, I know I'm a good person. And we all tend to think we're pretty good. But usually the reason we know we're good is by virtue of a comparison with others. So we look out at the world around us and we think, wow, society is pretty messed up. It's not hard to see. This is a broken place. Human beings are somehow broken. And because of what I see out there, I can tell I'm if I try to locate myself on the totem pole of, of badness to goodness, I'm at least above average. So I'm probably a pretty good person. But there's a couple of flaws with this logic. The first one is this. If we are going to look out there and acknowledge that there's something broken within all of human beings, then we also have to acknowledge that we are made of the same stuff. So if something's broken out there, there's, it's better than likely that something is also broken in here. To say that I'm good and the rest of humanity is bad is kind of a self-awareness problem. It's like an apple tree in the middle of an apple orchard saying, wow, look at all these ugly, broken apple trees all around me. If it's bad out there, it's probably bad in here too. And then the other flaw with this is that uh, whenever we decide that we are good, that has to come from somewhere. Goodness is not something that we can self-validate. And so we all try to find something to hang our hats on to say, this is how I know I'm a good person. But oftentimes, there's somebody who is the exact opposite of you, who is hanging their hat on the fact that they are the exact opposite of you as the reason they are a good person. Here's what I mean. This happens in the political sphere all the time. Our country has never been more divided when it comes to politics. But if you look at the conversations that go on, on either side of the aisle, you have somebody saying, I know I'm a good person because I'm not like them. And the person on the other side of the aisle is saying, well, I know I'm a good person because I'm not like them. And so the question is, who's right? Goodness is not something that we can self-declare. It's something that has to be validated. There has to be some standard of goodness that makes a person good or bad. And what this passage is saying, when it says we are dead in our sin, it's not saying that every single person is as bad of a person 
as they could possibly be. It's not saying that. You can be a very good and moral and upright person and still be dead in your sin. What it is saying is that as it pertains to our ability to please God, we bring nothing to the table. It's also saying that every single one of us has sin in our lives. We either rebel against God or at times live indifferently toward him. And every single one of us has this in our lives. And sin in our lives in any quantity makes us dead because we incur a debt and we bring nothing to the table as it pertains to our ability to pay down the debt that we have have accrued over time. That's what this means when it says that we are dead in our sin, that somewhere fundamentally deep down in every one of us, something is broken and something has, has gone wrong. So what it's saying is that I am no more likely to be able to please God by being a good person than a dead person is to win the Boston Marathon. But then on the other hand, the, de- the extent to which we are able to see that, to comprehend that and wrap our heads around the fact that we are dead in our sin is the same extent to which we'll be able to see the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that moves us into the second part. So if the first part is my part, I bring nothing to the table as it pertains to this, then the second part is Jesus' part. And I'm gonna go ahead and read verses four through nine because they kind of explain it. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." So there are a couple of key things that we need to explore in these, this group of verses, but the biggest one is this. So that's one big kind of run-on sentence, all of these clauses, all of these phrases. There's one thing that's repeated twice in all of that. Two times it says, for by grace you have been saved. That's what it says about us, twice. And so what that's saying is that something happened to us. Something happened to you. It was something that you had nothing to do with. You didn't do anything to earn, and yet you receive the benefit of. And that's what grace is. And really, if you spend any time around Christians or around churches, you probably will hear the word grace. It's, it's a word we say all the time. And I think we try to define grace all kinds of different ways, but anytime I try to make a definition for grace, it almost always feels hollow. Like it doesn't quite capture what I want it to capture. And I think that's because grace is not something that's easy to define. It's, it's much easier to experience it. And so the best way I can try to explain it is to try to share a time of when I've experienced it. And this is something that my wife did for me, and, and maybe you've heard this from me before, but it's one of the best experiences of grace I've ever had in my life. So uh, when Emily and I, she's my wife, started dating, I uh, was right in the middle of the first time that LeBron James played for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I love basketball. I love the Cavaliers. And so I was a huge Cavs fan, still am. And I remember one night early on in our relationship, the Cavaliers were scheduled to play against uh, the Los Angeles Lakers. And at the time, the Lakers, their star was Kobe Bryant, and he and LeBron were, were the two best players in the league. So they had this sort of natural rivalry. Anytime they matched up, you wanted to see that game. And that was one of those games that when the schedule came out, I'd circle it on the calendar and say, if I can, if I can help it, I want to see that game. The problem was the night that that game was scheduled, Emily's parents had invited me 
over to their house to, to be a part of a family dinner. And so uh, I, even at that time, I had enough sense to know that uh, it's not wise to skip family dinner at your girlfriend's house to watch a basketball game if you'd like to stay in that relationship. And so I went to family dinner all the while thinking, man, I really hope there's some way I can get home in time to watch this game. And so we are sitting at, at dinner and dinner was great, having a great conversation and uh, time started to move along and I started to get restless because in my head I was making some calculations. Calculation number one was this, that Emily's parents don't have cable. So I wasn't gonna be able to watch the game at their house. And then I started, I realized, okay, my house where I know I can watch the game is about 30 minutes away from here. So I'm watching time start to sort of slip away and I'm beginning to get more restless and more frustrated. And by the way, guys, women love it when their significant other disengaged from a conversation because they're more focused on a sporting event. That's just a great relationship tip that I can give you is to do that. And Emily sensed this. She saw it. She, she knows me pretty well. And even back then, she knew me pretty well. And so she was able to see it. And so she said, hey, Jimmy, we need to talk. And she pulled me into this other room. And so I followed after her, kind of shuffling my feet and dragging my feet because I thought, this is it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. And she's going to grab me by the shoulders and say, hey, snap out of it. Get your head on straight. But she didn't do that. Instead, uh, she just handed me a card. And I still have it today. And I'm going to uh, read it for you. Here's what it says. It's uh, dated from December of 2007, which is depressing because it means my life is slowly slipping away from me. But uh, it says this, Dear Jimmy, I know it's not Christmas yet, but I was hoping you'd be able to take a present early. I have so enjoyed spending time with you and getting to know you these past few weeks. I wanted to do something special. I hope you're free tonight. I was wondering if you can go with me to the Cavs game, Cavs versus Lakers, LeBron versus Kobe, you and me, club seats. What do you say? Emily. She handed me this, and I bought her engagement ring that night, so <laughs> I didn't need any more information. I had everything I needed, so no, but that right there, that feeling, that's grace. That's what grace feels like. It's this totally undeserved, totally out of the blue kindness. It's like the feeling of when you put on your winter coat after the entire summer, and you find a $10 bill in the pocket. Or it's like when you're getting onto an airplane and your tickets get upgraded to first class. Or when you take an exam and you're so sure you failed it and you get it back and you realize you got an A. That's, that's what grace feels like. That's the reason why at Christmas here we do something called Just Because, where we blanket this area with 10,000 acts of random generosity. What we're hoping is that people will get just a little glimpse, a little taste of grace which is the basis for God's relationship with us. That's why we do it. That's why in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus was trying to describe the kingdom of God, he said things like, uh, the kingdom of God is like this person and he's walking around in a field and it's a dusty field. He's been walking for miles and miles and he stubs his toe and he looks down and realizes he stubbed his toe on a box full of treasure. Or he says, the kingdom of God is like this person who deals pearls and all day, every day, dives to the bottom of the ocean, pulls up oysters, shucks them, hoping to find a pearl that he can sell and make some money. And one day, he pulls up an oyster, opens it, and there's a pearl in there that's more valuable and bigger than all the other pearls he's ever sold combined. What he's trying to describe is this unbelievable, just out of nowhere kindness, that feeling of grace. That's what grace is. And, and so what this passage is saying is that God has given us an incredible gift. And the way that he's given us is through grace. There's nothing we could possibly have done to earn it. 
And the gift that he, uh, he gives us is Jesus. And that's the other thing we need to see from this section is what exactly we get when we get Jesus. And it says a few things. It says we were dead in our trespasses. It says that he made us alive together with Christ, that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And so what this is saying is that through God's grace, we have been connected to Jesus in such a deep and meaningful way that we get credit for things that Jesus has done. So here's what I mean. Jesus was the only person who ever lived on this earth without sinning. He lived perfectly. He had perfect righteousness, never did anything wrong. By God's grace, the gift that we get is that we get credit for that. When Jesus went to the cross and he died, he took on himself the penalty and the punishment that comes because of every sin that's ever been committed by any person. He took that on himself. Through God's grace, we get credit for that. And then when Jesus was raised from the dead three years, three, three days later, he was raised to show that he had power over sin and death itself. And when we take the gift that God gives us, we get credit for that in the sense that we have that power living within us and that's what transforms us. So God's grace, the gift that he gives us is that we get credit for the things that Jesus has done. And so this is actually kind of freeing in such a way, in a, in a way. Because if you look at the two things that we've discussed so far, the first is our part, my part, and it's that we bring nothing to the table. That's hard for me to believe. It's hard for me to believe because I ask myself, like, well, it can't possibly be this bad. And, and maybe that's hard for you to believe, but maybe you have trouble believing the second thing. Maybe you have trouble believing that, that God's grace would be this good and this free. Maybe that's you. Either way, at the root of that struggle to believe either one of those two statements is this. It's us saying, God, there has to be something I can do. There has to be something I can bring to the table to help, to earn this, whatever it is. And what this passage is saying, it's repeated at the end for emphasis. He's saying, let me be abundantly clear. There is nothing you can do. You cannot earn this, no matter how many good things you do. And that can be scary, but it can also be freeing in understanding that what he's saying is that God's love for us, he doesn't love us any more or any less dependent on things that we do. It's not something that we can earn, which also means it's not something that we can lose. It's totally and completely dependent on him, and he gives it to us freely in the form of Jesus when we get credit for the things that Jesus has done. So when God looks at you and he looks at me, he doesn't see our sin, he doesn't see our brokenness, he doesn't see our shame or the mess that's in our lives. He sees Jesus in his perfection, and that's what we get credit for. And incidentally, this is what makes Jesus different from any other religious figure. Because most religious figures come saying, hey, I think I found the way to God. I think I've got it. If you follow me, if you follow my teaching, if you do the things I tell you to do, it gives you your best chance of pleasing God and getting to him. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the way to God. Everything that you think you need to do to get there, everything you think you need to do to please him, I have already done for you and freely offer the opportunity for you to get credit for those things in God's eyes. So Jesus does not ask us to transform ourselves in the hope of pleasing God. Rather, he reverses that order. The declaration comes first. God says, I am pleased with you because when I look at you, I see Jesus. I'm already pleased with you. And then and only then does the process of transformation begin. 
And that's where we get to the third part in this passage. And that is uh, the part that we do together. And I'm going to read this. It's in verse 10. Here's what it says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So once we've entered into a relationship with Jesus, God has declared, I am pleased with you because you get credit for the things Jesus has done. And then transformation begins to happen in our lives. And there are two ways. The first is individual transformation that begins to take place. And, and this plays itself out in, in this tension that we begin to feel in our lives. And it's tension between the things that we want to do, the things that we think are right and wrong, the directions that we would like to take with our lives, and then we, become, we begin to become aware of the fact that God has ideas about what we should do, about what's right and wrong for us. And so we start to, and those aren't always in alignment. And so we start to experience this tension between those two things. And part of the process of transformation in our lives is us taking steps down the paths that God lays out for us, trusting that the benefit and the blessings that are gonna come from being obedient to him and doing the things that he wants are better than whatever we think we stand to gain by doing things our own way. But this individual transformation begins to take place where God changes us, he transforms us, and makes us more like what he created us to be. But then there's something else that happens. It says in this passage that we were created for good works and God's prepared them beforehand. And what that means is that God is unfolding this plan where he is transforming this world. He's taking what has been broken and he's making it whole again. He's taking injustices and making them right. He's healing what's been hurt. He is actively doing that and he invites us in to be a part of that process. And more than that, it says he already has stuff prepared for every one of us to do, which means he has uniquely gifted and wired each person to do something within that process. He's made us for that and he invites us in to be a part of that transformation. So he transforms us from the inside and then he uses us to transform the world. And I can't tell you specifically and exactly what he is calling you to because God works differently in the life of every person. What I can do is share how he has, has worked in my life. So uh, when I was a senior in high school, I remember having a conversation with a person at my, the church I was going to at the time. He was somebody who had mentored me on and off for a while. And uh, I was starting to make my college decision and figure out what I was going to do with my life. And he sat me down and he said, hey, Jimmy, I think you should consider working at a church or a Christian organization. I think that's something that it seems like you might have some of the skills you need. I think it's something you should consider. And I remember the conversation really clearly because I almost laughed at him. And I said that I thought it was ridiculous because I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know one thing for sure. I am never going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And my mindset at the time was that I was going to go, uh, I was going to go get the best job I could so I could get, so I could make a lot of money so that I could have everything that I felt like I needed that would make me happy and make me feel whole. And so I went off to college. I went off to the University of Akron. I studied applied mathematics because I felt that gave me the best chance to get the things that, that I wanted. And over time, I began to feel that tension that I just described for you that there is this path that I had set myself on then saying, I know what direction I want to go and starting to sense that God was saying, well, maybe that's not the direction I want you to go and maybe you should consider doing the things that I want you to do. And so I got to the end of college to the point where you start to think about applying for jobs and, and I had been sensing this and so to kind of appease God, I kind of said, hey, I, I'm, I will be open to this 
but you're gonna have to make it happen. But I have one stipulation. I have one stipulation. I will never work in student ministry. I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna be in youth ministry. So I started applying for jobs both within my mathematics field and outside of it in churches and Christian organizations. And a job came up here at Christ Community Chapel in sports ministry. And so I saw that and thought, wow, that seems like it could be fun. So I'll give it a shot. I applied. I did not get the job. And through the course of that process, the staff members who I was working with in the interview process said that they would like me to consider applying for an internship here within student ministry. And I remember I was polite in that conversation, but I walked, I remember driving home thinking, there is no way I will ever apply for that internship. But I went home and I thought about it and I talked to my wife about it and I prayed about it. And eventually I felt that tension again of me saying, no, I know where I'm going. And God saying, well, you may not know as well as you think you do where you're going because I might have something else for you. And so I said, I finally said, okay, God, I will apply for this internship, but I have one stipulation. And my one stipulation is this, I will never work with middle school students. I'm not gonna do that. And to make a long story short, a few weeks later, I accepted an internship here working with middle school students. And then a few months later, took a, pos- a full-time position here working with middle school students. And, and it's been seven years now. And I can tell you this, I, number one, I love working with our middle school students. It's so incredible to see God work in their lives. But then number two, I have never felt more joy and more fulfillment and more meaning in what I'm doing than when I'm living out the good works that God had prepared in advance for me. And that transformation can happen in all of our lives. And I'm not saying that for each person, what you're supposed to do is work at a church or a Christian organization. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that God has uniquely wired and gifted you for something within that whole scope of what he's doing in the world. And there's some role for you to play. And so he's transformed you and he wants to use you to transform the world. And it's up to us to kind of try to figure that out and to find what he wants for us. And that's what it means to be transformed. So the Bible makes this incredible claim. It claims that we can know God, that I can have a relationship with God. And more than that, that that not only can I have a relationship with him, that he will transform me. And we see that transformation in this passage. There is no bigger transformation than going from being dead to being alive. And that's the level of transformation that God does in our life when we come to know him. And it's because we get credit for the things that Jesus has done. And once that transformation takes place, God invites us in. He gifts us, he wires us, and he equips us to be used as he transforms the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. And we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we thank you that you invite us to speak to you just like this, that that not only can we have a relationship with you, but that you want that, that it's something that you want. And we thank you for the power that you use to transform us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that uh, we get credit for his righteousness and for everything that he's done. And we pray that we would live our lives with that truth at the very center of it, that we would be transformed inside and then we would be used to transform the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.